Today we continue our series uh, titled Be Transformed, uh, and we've been walking through uh, Paul's letter to the Roman church, and several semesters, if you're new with us, we covered the first few sections of it, and we're in the final section of Romans, which is chapters 12 through 16, and it's the most practical of all the sections in the letter. Paul spends 11 chapters dealing with some of the richest theological content put together in one letter in the whole Bible. And then the last five chapters from 12 through 16, he covers some of the most practical teachings you could possibly have. Kind of the so what's of everything that we believe. And in particular today, we're in chapter 14, and Paul spends two full chapters. This kind of is amazing. Two full chapters dealing with this issue of how do we relate and love one another as Christians in the area of non-moral convictions. Non-moral convictions. A non-moral conviction is a conviction that we have in our religious practice or our practice in our relationship with God that's not a direct command in the Bible, not a direct moral command. It's not something like adultery or drunkenness or using the Lord's name in vain or something like that or blaspheming or things like that that are clearly wrong that we can't say, well, my conviction is adultery isn't wrong. That's just my conviction. Now, that's not an option biblically. It's non-moral things. Things like, uh, we're gonna talk about things like music style. Things like casual or formal dress for church. These are the things that unfortunately, more churches have split over these non-moral convictions than they have over real, true, important issues. You'd almost think that Paul, in a, in a letter that's considered his magnum opus of letters, the most significant theological letter in the Bible, that Paul would spend two chapters out of 16, two chapters, more than 15% of this letter that's all about theology, but he spends two chapters talking to the church about how important it is that we're unified over these types of issues you would almost think that God knew that the church would struggle with these non-moral issues of divisiveness more than they would even the major theological issues that he's talking about. So how do we avoid those? What are some of those things? Well, I mentioned some of them. Music styles that we often get all in a tizzy about or, or formal or informal or, or Sunday school or small groups or when it comes to the toilet paper, is it over or under when you put it on there? And you guys know that we're an under church. Okay, that's just our conviction. And I see some of you sneaking out of the bathroom with that little guilty look on your face and you've switched the toilet roll to go over and we're an under church. Don't make a split over that issue. I throw humor in because it's silly when we really think about some of the things that we split over. So how do we properly love and relate to each other with differing convictions in the area of non-moral issues? How are we to do that? Today we're going to see great, three great attitudes that Paul gives us in this passage that can help us be a church that loves and relates to each other when we have differing non-moral convictions. Three issues. The first issue is an inward attitude. The second is an upward attitude. 
And the last one is an outward attitude. Three attitudes that if we'll embrace them, if you'll embrace them, if we will embrace them as a church, will allow us to be healthy and unified even amongst our differences with non-moral convictions. So if you have your Bible with you, open it up to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, we're gonna look at verses five through 12 today. Romans 14, five through 12. If you're new with us or you're new to the Bible, there are some hardcover Bibles in the chair in front of you. Grab one of those and in your worship guide where the notes are for our message, the page number is listed there. That'll take you right to the page in the Bible where this is at. Uh, You can also follow along on the screen, but we're gonna see in this passage these three attitudes that Paul talks about, an an inward attitude, an upward attitude, and an outward attitude that will help us avoid being divisive over non-moral issues or convictions. Let's pray and we'll jump into this great passage. Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you that you're not a God who is only high and lofty and magnificent and, and reveals yourself in ways that are, are even beyond our human comprehension because of how infinitely amazing you are. But you're also a God who gets down into the nitty-gritty and the day-to-day issues that you knew we would struggle with, uh, even as fellow children of God. So Lord, my prayer is, is that as we get into some of those nitty-gritty issues today, that uh, we would honor you and we'd honor each other. We would laugh at ourselves and we would also consider ourselves when it comes to how we treat these types of issues in our lives and in the lives of others around us. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Romans 14, 5 through 12, an inward attitude, an upward attitude, and an outward attitude. So verse 1 basically gives us our inward attitude. And Paul starts like this. He says, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So Paul here is talking about an issue that was going on, much like the eating meat or not eating meat last week. Some people within the church thought a certain day was really holy and esteemed it, and others thought every day was all alike. And at this point in the New Testament, Paul's saying, hey, this isn't a moral issue. It's not the same as it was in the Old Testament with the Sabbath. Jesus has fulfilled a lot of the ceremonial aspects of the law, and so he's that fulfillment of it, and they pointed to him. Now we have a freedom to be holy in every single day. I mean, every single day should be holy in many ways. And so there is a disagreement in terms of that because you had both Jewish people and non-Jewish people and new Christians and older Christians at this time in the church, and they were struggling over that. And Paul says here how we establish this, that each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So here's your first point. As I should be fully convinced in my own mind about my non-moral convictions. I should be fully convinced in my own mind about my non-moral convictions. So, what does that mean? That Paul's emphasis in this is that we should be fully convinced in our own mind. Now, what Paul's not saying here is a broad statement that truth is just relative. It's whatever I think. 
because that's not true when it comes to moral convictions or things that are very clear in Scripture. What he's saying is that when it comes to non-moral issues or non-moral convictions, then they may be different for each person at any given time. So let me give you an example of, of where I see this play out a lot, is I shouldn't simply adopt another person's convictions when I haven't thought through them myself. This is what we tend to do. This is what we all do early on in our lives. It starts probably with our families. And we grew up in our family, and our family is very important to us. It's our first environment in which we're you know, shaped in a lot of ways. And so we see the convictions of our parents or maybe our extended family, and we just take them on ourselves because we don't know any different oftentimes. And it's not that they're bad convictions, but it's understanding that those convictions may or may not be the best convictions for my life. And here's what I mean by that, is, is you might know, and I've seen this in my family and, and, and seen that in generations, is you might have grown up in a family where maybe your parents grew up in a family or they personally dealt with issues of alcoholism. And maybe they personally struggled with it or maybe their parents did. And so in their family, they were deeply hurt by alcohol and the effects of it. Not by alcohol itself, but because people abused it in their families. And so their conviction is, hey, that was so detrimental, it was so painful in my life that I want nothing to do with it. I am choosing not to drink at all. And for me, it would be wrong to do that, they'd say. And that's a great conviction. It's a very normal and natural conviction when you come out of those settings. But children born into that family may not have that same issue. If their parents were the first ones to say no, but they see their parents as never ever drinking alcohol at all, and they adopt those convictions, well, their setting is different. They didn't grow up in an alcoholic family or with that around, and so for them, they might not have the same issue with having a drink or having some wine or enjoying it in a proper setting and in a healthy way like their parents did. And so it's not just something that should be passed down point blank. It happens a lot with spiritual leaders or people that we look up to. We listen to a certain spiritual leader or this pastor or we read this person's books and we see their convictions and we go, wow, I really admire this person, so I'm gonna take the same exact convictions that they have and I'm gonna use them in my life. But we haven't really thought through them, we just take them because we admire that person. We don't stop and say, do I need these same convictions in my life? Are they what's best for me and how God wants me to steward my life? And that's what Paul is saying here. You need to be convinced in your own mind that this conviction is the best way for you to steward your life for God's honor and his glory. It's an inward attitude that you have. Okay, so here's a, a little story that kind of captures this really well, uh, and it's a funny story. You maybe heard me tell it before, but there's a, a, a family that was celebrating Christmas, and, and they had their whole extended family together this Christmas. So the daughter, little young daughter was there, mom was there, and mom was responsible for the meal that year, and grandma was there, and great-grandma was there. And so mom brought her daughter in to help out the, for the first time with Christmas dinner that time. And so they were preparing the ham. And as she was preparing the ham with her daughter there watching, she cut both ends off the ham before she put it into the roasting pan and started to go into the oven. And the daughter, just being observant, went, well, mom, how come you cut the ends off? the ham before you put it in the roasting pan and mom paused for a minute she goes well 
I don't know. I said, Grandma always used to cut the ends of the ham off every time we did it, so let's go ask her. So they go over and they go over to Grandma and say, Grandma, how come you cut the ends of the ham off before you put it into the roasting pan? And Grandma goes, well, I don't know. I mean, great-grandma always used to cut the ends of the ham off before she put it into the roasting pan. So let's go ask her. So they all walk over to great-grandma sitting in the chair over, and she goes, great-grandma, how come you cut the ends of the ham off before you put it into the roasting pan? And great-grandma smiles and looks at him and says, well, the roasting pan that great-grandpa bought me was too small to fit a whole ham in, so I always had to cut the ends off in order to fit it in there. You get my point? Is the reason it was necessary for great-grandma, great-grandma, was because those were the circumstances she was in. But we tend to just take things on that have no meaning to us and never stop to say, is this what I need to do to accomplish it? So what do I do if my convictions don't match another person's? Uh, what are some examples of this thing? And what are, you know, what are they? Like we've talked about it. Worship style is one. Uh, we've talked about casual versus formal dress. Uh, what that means to each culture. Altar calls or no altar calls. That's a common one that I get questions about here at Grace. And these are non-moral issues. And I get it why, where we come from, but uh, we, whether we do an altar call when we share the gospel or not, some people come from settings where that's what their church did, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's no biblical precedent for it. I don't think there's one altar call in the whole Bible. There's calling people to trust Jesus, and, and we do that within the messages, and you can do it right where you're sitting, and you can indicate that anytime you want. In fact, there's not one example really even in the New Testament of any of the disciples coming to that point. They finally made that declaration. One of them did, Peter. But when exactly does that happen? But in our church history, we have periods where in great revival times, there were certain practices that weren't really based on Christian teaching as much as they were big rallies and moving people and getting them very emotionally whooped up and then bringing them up to the front and thinking that as long as you walk up to the front, you've made some kind of significant decision. Unfortunately, what happens is lots of people walk up to the front, but then they walk right back into the exact same lifestyle that they've been doing, but they think that they're okay because they remember walking up to the front one day. I don't think making a decision to follow Jesus is really that simple. It is very simple. It's a matter of trusting in him. But it doesn't matter whether you walk to the front, whether you mark it right in your seat, or whether you do it at home, or you do it while you're reading your Bible. It's a supernatural thing that will take place whether you're at the front of a church or you're in the back seat of a movie theater. So those are non-moral issues that we aren't going to divide over, but we think through why or why don't we do them. The practicing of Lent is another great one. Uh, you may not have a conviction to do it. I talked to someone uh, last Sunday. It was actually a great conversation. Uh, she grew up in a family uh, that practiced Lent all the time, but she was so hurt by it and still is hurt by it from her family because they give up things that aren't what Lent's all about. They give up like their drunkenness. They say, I'm not going to get drunk or party at all during Lent, and then Easter comes and they're getting sloshed. Or they give up some other kind of sin during that time, and then they just jump right back into it when Easter's over. 
And she said, I was so hurt by that that it just kind of ruins the whole practice for me. I can't see it as something that's profitable. And I said, you know, that's okay for right now. Maybe your Lent is just praying that God will help you be more in tune with him during this season and maybe redeem something that's not wrong in itself but heal you from the hurt of seeing it done improperly. If your conviction is not to celebrate this with us as we go through it, I'm okay with that. I understand that. I still think it's something that we as a church can do in a very neat way when we do it with positive uh, principles behind it. So what do we do if our convictions don't match another person's or our convictions, our non-moral convictions don't match our church? Those are great questions. I wanna dive into them a little bit because they're very practical ones. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say you take your neighborhood, okay? And let's say in your neighborhood you have neighbors that have all different types of convictions about different things. Some of them have convictions about music, some have convictions about food, some about colors of houses, and they come over to your house and they go, oh my goodness, Chad, why did you paint your kitchen this color? This is a horrible color for a kitchen. My conviction is your color of your kitchen should be this type of color because it's just more conducive for the kind of environment you want in your kitchen. And they say, Chad, what's up with this music you got playing? I mean, hello, who listens to this music anymore? My conviction is you should be listening to this kind of music. And when you prepare your steaks and your fajita chat, you should really be cooking it this way. I mean, if you really knew anything about it, you see where I'm going? So what am I to do? Should I just give in to all their convictions and say, you're right, that's what I should do? Or who's responsible for the convictions within my household? I am, right? So in, in situations like that with individuals, how do we decide? Well, we decide who's the authority over that particular area. When it's just individual to individual, I'm the one in authority over myself. I'll be accountable to God with non-moral convictions, and so I need to take responsibility for my personal convictions. Someone else is not responsible for it. When I'm interacting with a group, then you have to consider that group. Say, for example, a church. We're going to be a church that's going to have lots of different convictions in different areas. And so if you have a personal non-moral conviction, if you have a moral one, that's another issue. Address it as a moral conviction. But first stop and ask yourself, is this a moral conviction or a non-moral one? And if it's a non-moral one that's that important to you that it's disturbing you, then you should come and talk to a leader about it and present why you feel so strongly about that non-moral conviction. And then as you discuss it with a leader and they help you understand maybe what our stance is or what your stance is, when it's all said and done, you have to accept the conviction of the leader as a representative of the church because it's our God-given biblical leaders of this church that God gives the authority to lead this church and decide what's best for this organization. Doesn't mean they're of greater value. It just means in God's ordained order that's how he's decided to lead things, just like it is in our own home. Now, the decision may not require a change in your convictions, but just for you to honor what the group or the church's stance on it. You can still have different convictions and do it in a loving and honoring way. You don't have to change them to accept the churches, but you do need to honor the churches in the sense if you want to participate with that organization. If you don't agree with the churches and you can't, do that, then that's legitimate as well. 
And then at that point, you can graciously leave and go find a place where your convictions match up with them, if that's that important to you. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. I'm saying that's a biblical way and a biblical reason to say, I just am not gonna fit here very well, and I get that. And then when you leave, we do it in a gracious way. We say, hey, we just have differences. I, I do that all the time. There are some people that come to grace, God-fearing, very mature, loving Christians, but there are certain aspects about our style and who we are that they just really struggle with. And I say, you know what, I totally get that. And I will point them, encourage them to different churches that I know have styles or preferences or convictions in those areas that fit who they are because more importantly than them coming here and us adding another person to our church, I want them to go to a place where they're gonna grow and mature as a believer of Jesus. And if it's not here, then this isn't a good place for them. So those are kind of, I think, good guidelines that help us in those settings. Here's a couple other little tips that are really important. In a group setting, when you're in a group setting and there's non-moral convictions, what do you do? I say this, the individual should defer to the group's corporate non-moral convictions. Meaning, you accept what the group's convictions are when you're within a group. Don't come in and try to change the groups to your convictions. That's being disunified. When it's uh, individual to individual, when it's just two people, then I believe the Bible teaches that the mature believer defers to the less mature believer in the practice of their conviction. They're not called to change their conviction because the mature one has the more mature view. Paul said that. But we are called to defer to the less mature believer's practice of that conviction for the sake of not causing them to stumble against their own convictions. It's always a deference oftentimes, and we do that. And when we don't, we start to create division. Let me give you a couple great examples I've seen in our church, or at least some examples. Here's uh, both a personal view as well as a view that I've uh, taught our staff as well, is, is for me personally, I don't have a, a, an issue with having a glass of wine or a beer. I have an issue with drunkenness. The Bible's very clear about that. But I enjoy a glass of wine, I enjoy beers. We grew up, or we came out of the Northwest, I love the different microbrews and different things like that. I just enjoy that. So I don't have any problem enjoying that or other people enjoying it with moderation. However, I also realize that as in my role, and I did the same thing when I was a teacher and a coach, is I had a personal conviction that I will not drink in a public setting uh, around where the people are that I'm ministering to and loving with. You get me out of town, it's a whole other question. I'm, I'm kidding, that's a joke. Just trying to lighten it up a little bit. So. What I would do is, is when you were in those settings, and I know I could, I had no maturity-wise, I'm not disobeying God, but I also knew that if a student walked by or one of my players walked by and I didn't see them and I happened to be having a beer or a glass of wine at a restaurant and they just saw that, as their young minds might think, oh, he's a Christian, he's drinking, they have no idea how much I've drank. They probably don't even really know these principles at all. And it might harm them and harm my opportunity to have a relationship with them or speak truth into their lives because of that one incident. The same is true in this community. I have no idea what people's convictions are all around this town. But if people saw me out drinking and they know you're a pastor, that could immediately turn them off in a wrong way but it's still turning them off and, and does not give me an opportunity to speak love into their lives. And for me, 
Any person in our community that doesn't know Jesus is infinitely more important than my ability to enjoy a beer or a wine at any restaurant. I'll gladly give that up. That's an example of how we defer to others in it. Here's another great one, one that I appreciate and think models unity so well, is there's a, a family in our church, or several families like this, but here's one in particular, where they come from a tradition where infant baptism uh, was part of their tradition. That's their conviction. And there's different types of infant baptism throughout church, and I'm not comparing them all. Some are just outright wrong. And they think that infant baptism removes sin. They think infant baptism uh, saves you and puts you in a place where you're saved. That's not what we're talking about. That would be a moral difference. But there are some Christian Orthodox traditions that hold infant baptism to be the New Testament parallel to uh, circumcision in the Old Testament. And circumcision never saved a child and it happened when they were a child. They still had to grow up and trust uh, God as they went on. But with the uh, New Testament, they believe that, that infant baptism is very much the same. It doesn't save you. It just identifies you as physically being within the church family, and then you put your faith in Christ as you grow. That's the conviction of some, many orthodox positions. So it becomes a bit of a non-moral issue in terms of what we believe. And we believe, our conviction is believer's baptism after you believe in it. Well, this family uh, in particular said, hey, we're worshiping here in this community. And we realize this is a secondary issue in terms of the heart behind it. Our theology is the same. It's our practice. It's a little different. And so they were willing to go through believer's baptism, even though their conviction was infant baptism, because they wanted to be part of this community that has a different conviction in that area. That, to me, demonstrates maturity. It's a willingness to defer to the group in areas of non-moral uh, practice. So those are some great examples of, of how uh, we are convinced in our own mind what's really important and how we can relate to each other and defer as we do so. That's the inward part, how we need to wrestle through that ourselves and make sure that our convictions are best for us in accomplishing what we're going to see next is our upward attitude. What's our upward attitude? And Paul addresses this in verses 6 through 9, so follow along with me. He says, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord. He's referring back to verses one and through four where it was an eating issue. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Here's what's so neat about this passage. Paul dresses all the differences. Celebrate this day or don't observe this day. Eat me, don't eat me. Whatever it is, there's one thing that was in common in every single one of those sections of the verse. Is if you eat it, you eat it unto the Lord. If you abstain from it, you abstain from it unto the Lord. If you celebrate it, you celebrate it unto the Lord. If you don't, you don't unto the Lord. Meaning, it's not a competition, people. It's not me doing this to compete with you. It's not me doing this to make myself look better than you or to snub my nose at you. It really has nothing to do with you at all. 
It has to do with how I need to relate to the Lord at that time. Now, again, I'm focusing on non-moral issues. Very important. Here's my point. is My conviction should be practiced to honor and give thanks to God. My conviction should be practiced to honor and give thanks to God. Not to impress others, not to seem superior to others, not even to compete with others. You see, they aren't done for the sake of others. They're done because they're helpful in our personal relationship with the Lord at that time. Now, here's what's important. It's not even about the action itself. It's about the attitude behind it. In fact, in the, in the book of Galatians, Paul got upset with people who were practicing and honoring certain days where here he's fine with it because they're not doing it for the wrong reasons. He gets upset and actually rebukes Christians and Galatians because they're practicing certain holy days because their motivation in doing it was to earn their salvation. They thought, if I do these things, then I'll be acceptable to God. So here's the exact same practice that Paul here is saying, hey, whether you celebrate this day or you don't, if you do it to God, then that's great. If you're doing it to honor and thank him for something that's already completed, that's great. But if you're doing it to earn God's favor or salvation, that's absolutely wrong. It shows us that the exact same behaviors can be right in one circumstance and totally wrong in another. It deals with our upward attitude when we do it. Again, this is non-moral issues, not moral issues. There's no adultery unto the Lord. It just doesn't exist. Okay? See, if the focus of our convictions is the Lord, then we won't be concerned or judgmental of other people's convictions. Let's look at our last point. This last one is an outward one. So we've seen an inward one. I've got to be convinced in my own mind. We've seen an upward one. It's to honor God and to give thanks to him. And anything we do that does that in a non-moral conviction is, is a blessing. It's good for him and for us. Lastly, we see an outward one is an outward attitude. And verse 10 says this, why do you pass judgment on your brother or you why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This deals with our outward attitude, but it deals with our outward attitude in the sense of how it relates us and makes us accountable to whom we're really accountable to, God. We should have a proper attitude toward our brother or sister because we're not accountable to them and they aren't accountable to me in non-moral issues. We're accountable to God. Paul brings up this idea of the judgment seat of God. In other parts of Scripture, in particular 2 Corinthians 5.10, it's called the judgment seat of Christ. There are two specific judgment seats that we see in, in the Bible. One is the great white throne judgment, which deals with salvation, you're in or you're out kind of ideas. That's not what this is talking about. This is the judgment seat of Christ. This is a judgment that's for every single Christian. 
you and me. It's not a judgment of salvation. You're not going to get to the judgment seat of Christ and then find out, oh man, I didn't make it in. That's not what it's about. If you find yourself at the judgment seat of Christ, the first thing you can do is go, whew, I'm good. The second thing you can go is, whoa, did I steward my life the way I should have given what I've learned and what I know? Because our lives will be evaluated as Christians for what we've done in the body, the Bible says, whether good or evil. We will be accountable for how we lived. And that day will be a day where God will evaluate our motives for why we did what we did. He'll evaluate our convictions. He'll evaluate our stewardship. He said, Chad, I gave you this much. I gave you these things. What did you do with it? It's the parable of the talents, in a sense. When Jesus told the parable of the talents, it wasn't a salvific parable. It's a parable about the judgment seat of Christ, that based on what God has given you, he is going to hold us accountable to steward it for his glory and for his good. And when he does so, the Bible says he will put you over cities, he will give you great rewards based on how well you lived here. He says, if you can't handle or steward temporal things here, why would I give you eternal things? God's telling us, when you steward what you know you're never going to be able to hang on to, and you steward it to his glory, he's going to give you infinitely more of what you will have for all of eternity. And that's what this passage is talking about. Is my convictions aren't for others or for impressing others, is, is they're for God. And so my last point is this, is I don't need to judge or despise another's convictions because we will all be accountable to God. I don't need to judge or despise another's convictions. I'm talking about non-moral convictions because we will all be accountable to God. God will evaluate our actions. He'll evaluate our motives, and he'll know who we were trying to please or impress with our lives, whether it was God or whether it was people. Now, I want to tell you a little story. I wrote this story trying to capture this idea in as tangible a way as I could, so it's imperfect, but I think it'll get the point across. This is just a fictional story of, of I think, that brings this all together, these principles all together. So I'm going to ask you to do something. I want you to pretend you're a parent, and you're a parent of two sons, we'll say, okay? So put yourself in, in parent mode. If you're not a parent, pretend you are and you have two sons. And here's the story. Pretend you were a parent with two sons. One son was a ridiculously horrible driver. He had no control over his right foot, had wrecked the car, and put others in danger, yet you gave him permission to drive because driving is not a moral issue. The other son was a very cautious and conscientious driver. Let's say, however, the first son eventually developed the conviction that he would no longer drive his parents' car. He realized he was a bit reckless and jeopardized the car each time he used it. So he developed the conviction of not driving. Even though there's nothing immoral about driving, he would walk or get a ride everywhere he went. Now, let's say the younger son saw this and thought, hey, that's a pretty strong conviction. I want strong convictions too. Maybe I'll do the same. So he decides never to drive his parents' car also. 
Now a day comes when the dad sits down with his boys to evaluate their life. And the oldest boy says, Dad, I realize I've damaged some of your cars, but my conviction over the past six months has been not to drive anymore. To this, the father says, I'm proud of you, my son. You have done this to honor me and my cars and acknowledge that you're thankful for my presence in your life. Now the second son thinks, Dad's going to praise me as well. So he tells him, Dad, I've made that same conviction. However, the dad responds, but why, my son? You're a good driver. I have provided a good car for you to use, and you could be much more productive if you had your own transportation. Instead, you slow yourself down and inconvenience others to get to where you're going. I have given you a car. You can honor me and give thanks by properly using it. Can you get the difference? Do you see why a conviction, a non-moral conviction, in and of itself is not right or wrong for a person? It depends on that individual. You see, your non-moral conviction should be an expression of your love for God or for others. If they don't result in showing love to God and they don't result in showing love to others, then you need to ask yourself, why do I have these non-moral convictions? What purpose are they serving? See, no one had stronger convictions than Jesus did when he walked on this earth. And what's interesting about Jesus' convictions, in particular those that landed in, say, non-moral issues, is Jesus' non-moral convictions, for some reason, were attractive and attracted sinners and people far from God to be so attracted to him. And they often offended the most religious people of his day. For some reason, his non-moral convictions made him accessible to the people in the world that most needed to hear about God. But here's what's so amazing about Jesus. Is as he was heading to the cross, we see a beautiful example of how even his non-moral convictions changed for the purpose he was trying to accomplish. When he celebrated the Lord's Supper or the Passover meal that night that he was betrayed, he sat there at that table and he held up that cup and he he told them after he celebrated, he said, no more wine will touch these lips. I will not drink any more of this wine again until I drink it with you in my kingdom. Jesus had obviously enjoyed wine. Wine was a symbol of joy throughout the Bible. It was something that was a a gift that God had given to his people to enjoy properly. And Jesus did so. In fact, his first miracle was making wine at a wedding. The religious people called him a drunkard and a sinner because of his practices with it, even though he never violated the moral principle. But at that point, after enjoying it for those three years, he said, never again will I drink of it. His conviction completely changed from the time he went to the cross 
until he said, we'll drink it with you again in my kingdom. Do you know when that time will be? Have you ever stopped to think about when Jesus will give up his non-moral conviction that he'll never drink wine again? Something that's part of his creation that he created. It'll be at another wedding. It'll be at a wedding where you and I, the bride, the church, is joined to our true and greater husband, Jesus, in the kingdom of God. And it will be a celebration. It'll be a banquet. It'll be a party like no other party you've ever been at. And there will be plenty of wine, wine better than any wine you have ever tasted. And you won't have any desire to abuse it. You'll simply want to enjoy it because it's a gift from our greater groom. But why would Jesus give up wine in this season in anticipation of that day. Because in that day, he's waiting for the one in which he wants to celebrate and enjoy that wine together with. He's waiting for you and me. He's giving up wine so that every time I'd imagine he goes without it, he thinks of his bride getting ready for that wedding day. He's doing it out of love. He's not doing it out of judgment. He's not doing it to impress us. He's doing it as a reminder of what he truly loves. What he wants even more than wine is a relationship with his people and to honor his father in redeeming a people for himself. So here's where I want to leave us today. Three practical ways in which we can put this into our lives. The first, when it comes to non-moral convictions, here's a simple little principle. Keep your non-moral convictions to yourself. That's a joke. I'm kind of lightening it up a little bit. Not really. It is true. Keep them to yourself. They're not really for someone else. They're not to be inflicted on someone else. And it doesn't mean you can't share them and maybe someone else could benefit from them. I'm not saying that like don't ever share, but just realize what your convictions are in these areas don't have to be someone else's. They're between you and God. So keep them there in terms of where they're accountable to. The second one is dealing with more of us as a corporate entity. We as a church will be a church for the weaker brother. That's part of our philosophy as a church. We're a church for the weaker brother because the Bible portrays it in that way. We aren't going to, as we get more mature, say, hey, we're the ones that are leading here and I like this style and I like these preferences and these are all about me to the point where where we aren't comfortable for the weaker brother or the person who's not quite a brother yet coming into our church. It's kind of like parenting. When you're a parent and you have little kids, You don't say, you know what, two-year-old, you need to eat this stuff just like I eat it. And and you're going to eat your vegetables, you're going to eat meat, you're going to eat, this is what you're going to do, that's what a mature person does. And so you give a two-year-old a whole plate just like you do and say, you're going to have to eat this, you do it now. It's not what you do. As a mature one, you say, how do I help you digest what you need? You don't say, oh, you don't like vegetables, so you're never going to eat them. No, you grind them up a little bit, you produce them, and you, you... whatever I'm trying to say, I don't know what it is. I've had coffee today, okay, I'm a little wound up. You prepare them in such a way that they're able to digest them and take them in. 
the parents, the mature ones, are willing to give up their preferences of just making one simple meal and prepare it in such a way that the others can benefit. It doesn't mean you take out what they need. It means you prepare what they need in a way that's digestible for them. That's who we're going to be as a church. The mature ones should be able to feed themselves in some way. In fact, part of what we do as mature ones is we go out and help those that are less mature. That's just who we're going to be. We're going to be a church for the weaker brother. Martin Luther King, if you know, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, the, Reforma- the great reformer who started the Reformation and was all about the Bible and changed church history for many years. If you know anything about him, he wrote many of the great hymns of the faith. A Mighty Fortress is Our God is one of those hymns and many others. But do you know where he got the songs for the hymns that he wrote? From the bars. They were local bar tunes. And he took those bar tunes and brought them in and put his lyrics to bar tunes for this very reason. Because music does not make a difference because music isn't Christian or non-Christian. Lyrics are. And Martin knew that if people come in to hear the word of God and they don't have any clue as to what's going on, they're going to be lost and they're going to leave as if they aren't a welcome guest. But if they come in and they recognize the tune, they go, hey, I know that tune. And now they're singing lyrics that are talking about God. They're going to be able to digest something that they would have never digested before. He got the picture. Oftentimes we don't. Last thing. We will be a church for the culture of our city. We will be a church for the culture of our city. Oftentimes, churches in our community that are denominations or or churches that move from the north, they think that their culture, their non-moral convictions of culture, are what everyone's non-moral convictions should be. And they think, why don't we make the church here in Laredo, just like it is where we come from, because that's the only right way to do it. And it's not. It's different. Every culture has great aspects to it, and every culture has issues it must be redeemed from. Where I come from, we all stand like this and barely make a noise. We're super formal. We're super serious. We don't laugh. We don't smile. You don't show much expression or joy at all because God is serious stuff. But God didn't just make us serious. He gave us joy. He gave us celebration. He gave us tears. He gave us all these things. And other cultures express that much differently than my culture did. And so we're not going to make this about any given culture, but the culture of who we are here. We are going to be a church that reaches the culture of our city. because those are non-moral issues. Those are things that aren't right or wrong. They're just based on who we are and who we're trying to honor. Imagine a church that actually put the central thing central and was able to welcome and love their brothers and sisters when they had differing convictions about non-moral things. Let their convictions be their convictions and my convictions before God be my convictions. Imagine the diversity. Imagine the beauty of understanding people's different stories in those areas. All while being 
deeply unified over those things that are absolutely central. That can be this church. That could be our church. Let's pray.